When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Cause. That's the nothing personal word of the day. Good morning. It is Wednesday, January 3rd, 2024. Cause, as in termination for cause. As in what the Tampa Bay Rays are trying to figure out if they can do to Wander Franco. This is a bit of a more serious conversation because we're talking about sex with minors, underage, Wander Franco, the player who the Tampa Bay Rays signed for 11 years, $182 million, the All-Star in 2023, that same very player who last August was put on administrative leave after it came out that he was being investigated for behavior unbecoming any human being. And what we said last year is that MLB was going to ignore this until after the postseason which they did. They wanted the focus to be on the playoffs. The Rays wanted no part of it. They released a simple statement saying we, the usual, what we were all told we have to say, which we all mostly do agree with, which is MLB, we like their policies, we agree with their policies, and we'll have no further comment. So the season ended, and I was wondering why I hadn't heard anything about Franco. And then just a couple days ago, we got an update. And I thought it would be interesting to tell you about the Dominican Republic and about MLB and how they work in the Dominican Republic and why it is so difficult to ever ascertain what the heck is going on down there. Way back when players lied about their age, they lied about their name, you would go down there and you would pay people 500 bucks a year to scout for you. And then you'd bring players in, you'd hide the players for years. You could sign them when they were 16. Literally, we'd take 13-year-olds like a Vladimir Guerrero and not let him see anyone, talk to anyone. You'd do a pre-done deal with the player and the Busconi, which is like an agent in the Dominican. And most of them are crooks. They're taking the money and they're barely giving it to the kids. And MLB decided that they wanted to be better in the Dominican. But it's not that they wanted to take care of the players more. The owners got upset, and I was a part of these meetings, where we didn't want to give a player a bonus because we thought the player was 20 when, in fact, the player was 25. Because the younger you are, the more upside you have, the more ceiling, the more you're willing to be able to project what the player can be. Therefore, you're willing to give a bigger bonus. So either we wanted to put a ceiling on bonuses, which the high market teams would not allow, the large market teams wouldn't allow that, 
at that time because they love to give out 10, 20 million dollars of bonuses and just give it to tons of players and hope for the best. And other teams wouldn't be able to afford that. And we could not negotiate in a collective bargaining agreement an international cap or international slots or an international draft. So what MLB said, here's what we'll do. We are going to have a clearinghouse. And it used to be a clearinghouse for scouting where you could go to MLB's scouting department. They used to have their own scouting department and they would scout players in the Dominican and they would try to verify the players. And yeah, we agree he's 22 or he's 16 or he's 18. And that you would be able to check. That really wasn't enough. It really didn't work properly. Eventually, Major League Baseball was able to get international slot money to be used on signing bonuses. And MLB was able to get from the players union an actual catalog of players where MLB and the union would both collectively have to approve a player, what the player's name is, what the player's age is, and then that player would become eligible to be an international sign. And that seemed fine, except it still didn't cure part of the problem down in the Dominican, which is the teams would be spending money on facilities. So you've read a lot about all of these teams and how they build their own academies in the Dominican. And what the academies were supposed to do was provide meals, education, and places to play for Dominican kids prior to them getting an opportunity to come to the United States under a visa. Literally, it's like a 10B1 visa where you can come and work in the States. And we would work with Washington DC, MLB would, teams would, in order to get players visas. There's limited visas. You have to decide which players you're gonna give visas to, to invite them over to spring training and to make your team. And so what the richer teams would do is they would build their own academies. And what the poorer teams would do is they would rent their own academies. So we would rent academies and there were players, there were old players, like there was a guy, oh, Coca. I wanna, I wanna say his name was Jose Lima, but I don't exactly remember. And he ran a bunch of academies and we would do a deal for like 10 grand a month and we would have the Expos or the Marlins Academy. But then teams started, even the smaller market teams, investing in their own academies. So all the academies were the same. And then there was international slots, which meant the level of the academy didn't actually matter because the money offered by the Yankees and the Marlins would be basically the same thing because they basically the same slot. So the only way that Busconi's and players would choose which teams to go to is what was happening on the side, under the table. There was an example with Marlins did, and I was gone by now, but this is really how it worked. And it was, remember the player Coca, uh, Victor, he had the same name. Victor, Victor Mesa was signed and then Victor Mesa Jr. was signed and they were brothers. And one of the brothers was really good. One of the brothers was really bad. And the irony is that in baseball, you get it wrong all the time. The Marlins player who was supposed to be good is no longer a prospect. The Marlin, the brother who was supposed to be bad is now an actual prospect for the Marlins. But the money that was given to the older brother who was supposed to be good or the younger brother, Victor, Victor Mesa, it was split in a way where the younger brother was forced, or the other Victor Mesa was forced upon the Marlins. That was very common and it is very common because what teams do is in order to get a player, they're willing to give money to other players 
because then the Busconi will give the good player to your team if the bad players get signed too, because then the Busconi gets to go to the families of the bad players and say, hey, I'm still getting money for you, though I'm taking 80%. All of which is to say, you don't know what the hell's going on and neither does MLB. But MLB opened an office in the Dominican and when they say they opened an office, it's like when they had an office in India, it was one person. It's not a fully functioning satellite office. It just is a rented office space where they put the MLB logo on the door. But MLB has a Department of Investigations based in the US and they work with authorities in the Dominican Republic. You may read that Albert Pujols is a part of all this, but ignore that. But what MLB in the US tries to do is understand what's happening in the Dominican with players and then when there are legal issues, except finding out what's going on with legal issues in the Dominican is virtually impossible. The reason why Major League Baseball has not suspended Wander Franco or finished its investigation is they are having a very difficult time figuring out what's going on. In the United States, when there's an investigation, like with Trevor Bauer, they get information in real time from the investigators in the particular state, whether they're federal or state, they speak to MLB's DOI. In the Dominican, it is much harder to get any information and information you do get, it's much harder to rely on. So MLB is stuck in a position where they can't do a thing with Wander Franco. Wander Franco is being investigated for this activity with underage women. He was called in to be questioned by Dominican authorities who have been investigating him for months. He blew it off. And then there was a warrant made for his arrest and a lot of attention got made because Wander Franco got arrested. Except he was not arrested for sex with underage girls. He was arrested for what we would call contempt of court. He was arrested for what we would call uh, ignoring a subpoena where he did not show up to be questioned. He then showed up except he is still currently behind bars. Today is the day that he gets arraigned. Arraigned is a concept that we use in the US. It's a constitutional right where you get to appear before a judge and the judge gets to say, you may get out of jail on bail or you are staying in jail, we're not granting you bail. The Dominican laws, it's not exactly like the United States. Your constitutional rights are not exactly like the United States. So we don't know what will happen with Wander Franco today. But what we do know is that the Dominican authorities are going to say today on the charge of not appearing, whether or not he should stay in prison. And they're gonna get an update, the judge will, from the investigators as to what's happening with their investigation into his activities. Meanwhile, Major League Baseball waits. Meanwhile, the Tampa Bay Rays wait. When we had a player who was in that position, you speak to the commissioner and you get updates as often as you can because you have to plan for your payroll. The Rays have to discuss and decide internally, are they going to count Franco's money in 2024 toward their cash payroll in their mind, on their books, on their P&L, in their budget, or can they be guided by baseball that even if Wander Franco is not charged, 
we are looking at a 50 game suspension or a 100 game suspension or a year long suspension. So the Rays are getting as much information as they can and making decisions financially based on what they're told. However, what they're also trying to do is figure out how to build a case to terminate his contract for cause. And you may ask, why would they want to terminate his contract for cause? And the answer is the Rays, who don't often give out contracts like they did, an 11-year, $182 million contract, have decided internally that no matter what the result of the investigation is, Wander Franco is no longer part of their plans. They no longer want to have him on their team and they no longer want to pay him. In baseball, when you sign a guaranteed contract, there's only one way to make it unguaranteed and that is a termination for cause. Part of the contract says that if you are convicted of a felony, your contract may be terminated for cause. And I said convicted, not charged. So if Wander Franco is convicted of a felony, they will terminate his contract for cause. But what is not specified, is it a felony in the Dominican, a felony in Venezuela, a felony in Antarctica? A felony in the United States is clearly termination for cause. There is some room for discussion about convictions of felonies other places. Why is that? Because the union from their perspective is pretty simple in what they say. We don't really know the legal system in the Dominican. We don't wanna put our players at risk of you terminating a player for cause when you only wanna terminate him for bad performance. Bad performance. That is what drives the union in all of its decisions and all of its negotiating. They don't ever want to let a team not pay a player who stinks. Because when you sign a player to a guaranteed contract, you are paying that player whether he hits 400 or 100. This is the whole steroid thing. Do you remember that? Whether or not a, you can terminate a player, we had it with D. Gordon. Can we terminate D. Gordon's contract? We signed him long-term. He has now been suspended for steroids. The answer was no. Can we put into the new collective bargain agreement that anyone who is suspended for steroids, that their guaranteed contract becomes non-guaranteed? And the union said no. Because if we allow that, then what stops the owners when their player stinks from tainting their piss? That was actually what they said. It made me insane. That's the level of distrust between the union and management that they think what we would do if we had a bad player, we would say, hey, you know what? Let's put some stuff in D's P. Give me a break. So at the end of the day, what the Rays are waiting for is whether or not he gets suspended, charged, convicted. When that happens, whether or not they can immediately terminate him for cause or terminate him, meaning release him and pay him in full, which is what the Dodgers did with Bauer, they don't wanna do, or terminate him for cause, wait for the grievance and then settle. Those are the things that you get to decide. 
That is what the Rays will be deciding with Wander Franco. The only thing that I can tell you for sure as a wait to see when I say that something's going to happen and then we'll revisit it, and by the way, we're revisiting a wait to see from yesterday already, is that Wander Franco will be suspended or miss at least 100 games in 2024. And MLB is going to have nothing to say about this until they have a decision. And they are not rushing to any decision because the union is allowing Wander Franco to stay on the administrative list. But the administrative list means that Wander Franco gets paid his salary, which is why the union's okay with Franco being on that list. And the Rays would like resolution as soon as possible, which brings me back to the budget question because it always comes back to that. When MLB is guiding the Rays and saying, listen, we don't think we're going to have resolution for at least three months of the season. So assume for your payroll calculation that you're paying Franco for half a season. That's an example of something that MLB could say. So there's still a lot of moving parts and we will see what happens. All right. I want to talk about the Atlanta Braves a little bit because I think that there is some bit of misunderstanding going on between fan bases of the Braves and fan bases of the Boston Red Sox. The Atlanta Braves were the best team in baseball last year. They were eliminated by the Philadelphia Phillies, who went on to win the pennant and lose in the World Series. In an upset, two years in a row, the Phillies beat the Braves. The Braves are, as you remember, a terrific offensive team. Remember, they had Olsen and Acuna, two of the top four in MVP, along with uh, uh, the two Dodgers, Betts and Freeman. And it was announced last week during our break that Chris Sale was traded by the Red Sox to the Braves. And people were wondering about that trade. And they were wondering why would the Boston Red Sox, who owed Chris Sale money for this year, so much money, why they had to send money to the Braves. And the reason is that Chris Sale is not a good pitcher. Chris Sale used to be an ace. Chris Sale is no longer even a middle of the rotation pitcher. He is a bottom of the rotation pitcher who cannot be counted on to start double digit games in a particular season. You have to forget about what you know about a player's past, and you have to think about the way a team is looking at a player's present. The Red Sox viewed the deal they did with Chris Sale, which I've tweeted about many times at David P. Sampson. That five-year, $145 million deal that they gave Chris Sale, remember that right before the season started in 19, after they won the World Series, when everybody was pressuring John Henry, you got to sign him, you got to sign him, and there was no reason to do it. Well, they did it, and guess what? In 2020 through 2023, that's four seasons, I guess one is COVID, so three and a half seasons, he's pitched 150 total innings. The Red Sox have paid him $74 million for those 151 innings. So it's not that the Red Sox are saving sales money because they could call 29 teams and not one of them would take Chris Sale at his salary. He's not marked to market at his current salary. What the Braves said is, we'll take Chris Sale from you, but we only want to pay him the minimum. In return for taking Chris Sale, paying the minimum, we will give you a decent player. 
And the player the Red Sox got is going to be a starting second baseman named Vaughn Grissom. Vaughn Grissom is still getting paid the minimum. He is going to start at second base for the Red Sox. He had no place to play for the Braves because they have Ozzie Albies. And so from the Braves standpoint, it makes perfect sense. What's the downside on taking a player who's being paid by somebody else? Because if he's not good, you release him and you don't owe him anything but the minimum. And from the Red Sox standpoint, Chris Sale represents something they want to move on from. And they can replace him with a productive everyday player. So this was a pure baseball trade where a player pays, gets paid by a team that trades him to a team that is taking a chance that maybe he can be the comeback player of the year. Now, the Braves already have a player like that in Charlie Morton, who was 40 years old, they're paying 20 million to, except Charlie Morton worked out great for the Braves and Chris Sale likely won't. But all of the talk about the Red Sox finances and all of the talk about the Braves taking on Chris Sale because they don't, can't take on any more money because their luxury tax bill, so therefore they're looking for cheaper players with bigger upside. Chris Sale is not that. Chris Sale is like a depth piece. He's someone, if you get a few starts from great, and if he's what he could have been or was great, but if not, get rid of him. If he says one bad thing in the clubhouse, get rid of him. If he does one thing off the field, get rid of him. If he gets injured, get rid of him. So from the Braves standpoint, no problem. From the Red Sox standpoint, nothing's changed, but they have a second baseman. But for whatever reason, so many people have been talking about the Red Sox, and it came up yesterday. Anger by Red Sox fans that John Henry, the owner of the Red Sox, could maybe sign Mbappe in Liverpool, but not sign anyone for the Red Sox. And I almost had an emergency podcast because I was so frustrated by people's conflating ownership. What do I mean? The Boston Red Sox are owned by a group called Fenway Sports Group. Fenway Sports Group has a bunch of investors. The leads of Fenway Sports Group are John Henry and Tom Werner. LeBron James is an investor in Fenway Sports Group. You have to picture it as a holding company. What a holding company is, it's a company that holds assets. One of the assets is the Pittsburgh Penguins. One of the assets is the Liverpool Football Club. One of the assets is the Boston Red Sox. One of the assets is, a net, is a, the network, Nesson, a percentage of Nesson. They actually have a percentage of the network where the Penguins play and the Pirates. The holding company does its own financials. Each individual asset does its own financials. The profits and losses from each of the companies both stand on their own, but also are reflected in a macro financial set of statements of Fenway Sports Group. Fenway Sports Group and John Henry, they don't look at the Red Sox and say, we're happy to lose $30 million here because we have another asset that is making $31 million. Therefore, Fenway Sports Group is up a million dollars. Holding companies require that each, and they should require, 
and the ones who don't, don't do well, is that each of the entities in the holding company, each of the assets held by the holding company can stand on their own two feet. The way I try to explain this to people is that pretend that you own 10 franchises of Chick-fil-A. Are you willing to own a 10th franchise of your 10 that loses money because one through nine make money? Therefore, as an owner of 10, you're making money, but the 10th Chick-fil-A loses money. You close the 10th Chick-fil-A or you sell the 10th Chick-fil-A or you find a way to make it profitable. You do not ever fund the losses of an asset with the gains of another. It is a terrible plan. Think about it in your own life, in your own business. Does it make sense when you've got something that loses money that you ignore it and you say no problem because we're doing so well over here? You would never do that because what you're doing is you're taking away from the greatness of one of your assets because it's forced to prop up one of your underperforming assets. There are certain entrepreneurs who are willing to do that. They dismiss it as something called a loss leader. We're willing to lose money on this Chick-fil-A because it's in a certain neighborhood that we want to provide a Chick-fil-A to because we want to be seen as someone who is a champion of the neighborhood. Okay, I'm willing to even entertain that as a notion, but that doesn't apply to sports teams and to conglomerates like Fenway Sports Group. And all of this happened because people read a simple tweet. And the tweet was that according to a source, the Red Sox are telling free agents that they need to shed more payroll before pursuing free agents aggressively. And I said, that's complete horse hockey. The Boston Red Sox would never say to an agent, we cannot negotiate with you until we get money elsewhere, until we release another player, until we somehow trade another player. Why wouldn't the Red Sox say, hey, we can't sign this free agent until we sign another corporate sales agreement with Liverpool? We can't sign another player with the Red Sox until we get a better sweet deal where the penguins play. That's not how the business is actually done. You never would say to a player or the player's agent that we have to do X before we can do Y. You just don't do Y. And the Red Sox are not acting the way they are because of what's going on in Liverpool or Pittsburgh. They are all completely separate. So all I ask, is when you're evaluating what your teams are doing, because this is the time of year when people are saying, my team has done nothing because there's lists everywhere. My team spent a billion dollars in free agency. My team spent zero in free agency. My team, the Cubs got a manager for 40 million, but then didn't sign any players. Please know that what teams are doing is not at all paying attention to free agent amount of money spent with other teams. They're not reacting to what other teams are doing. They are running their own team and their own business. As an example, the Los Angeles Dodgers. 
They are not running their business because they want to somehow show that they're bigger and badder than the Mets or that they want to have a bigger luxury tax bill on the Mets or that they want to show to the San Diego Padres, screw you, you're not us. Or they want to do anything other than use the money that they have to accomplish the goals that they've set out for themselves. So when they signed Otani to that deferred deal and they had money in their mind to sign Yamamoto, they offered Yamamoto a deal, but the deal that they offered Yamamoto was not materially different than the deal that the Yankees offered or that the Mets offered. Yamamoto simply chose the Dodgers. So as much as I wanna blame the Dodgers, because that's what the word is, I'm not, I can't because they were right in the market, whatever that market was set to be, which however wrong that market may turn out to be, either way, pro player or pro management, the Dodgers were in the sweet spot. But word came out yesterday, or a couple days ago, I can't remember Coca, about the Yamamoto contract, and I was fascinated by it. The Yamamoto contract was negotiated by Joel Wolf. Joel Wolf is the agent that I negotiated with for Giancarlo Stanton. Joel Wolf is one of the best agents in the business. The Yamamoto contract had something in it that I had never seen. When Joel Wolf and I were talking about Giancarlo Stanton, he wanted an opt out one time, not based on injury, not based on performance, not based on MVP votes, not based on a point system. He wanted it simply because he wanted protection that the Marlins would build a winner and win, and if not, he wanted to opt out and go to a winning team. He ended up going to the Yankees. My view during the heat of the negotiations was that you really only want the opt out if he can make more money. And I was promised that wasn't the case. I disagree to this day, but in any case, Giancarlo Stan, as you know, did not opt out of his deal and he stayed with the Yankees. Query, if Giancarlo could have made more money from another team, would he have opted out? I'll always say yes. Maybe I'm wrong, but the opt-out was clear and clean. The Yamamoto update is not. The Yamamoto opt-out is based on Tommy John surgery. Why? Because pitchers shouldn't get signed to 12-year deals because they're not gonna be healthy for 12 years. It is a unicorn for a pitcher to perform at an elite level for 12 years. A 12-year, $325 million contract, coincidentally the same number for Stanton, though he was 13, 325. The Dodgers said, we want to be protected in case of Tommy John. Except they didn't call it Tommy John, they called it any right elbow injury where you miss 134 days of the season. Otherwise known as Tommy John. There is no other right elbow injury where you miss 134 days of the season. It's not a flexor strain. It's not some sort of pain in your forearm. The only way you miss that amount of time elbow related is Tommy John especially when it's consecutive, which is what this opt-out says. So if Yamamoto misses 134 consecutive days with a right elbow injury, the opt-out for Yamamoto comes after eight years of his contract or after 10 years, when the player's either 33 or 35 years old. But if Yamamoto is healthy, 
he then has the right to opt out. I want to I want to get this exactly right. If Yamamoto does not have Tommy John, he gets the right to opt out after 2029. That's after six years. He'll only be 31 years old. He will have six years left on his deal. In theory, if he is Scherzer, which is what agents always want to say to their player and always want to try to protect against, what if my player is the greatest of all time? If he's Scherzer or if he's Verlander or if he's Cole, at 31 years old, having given six healthy seasons to the Dodgers, he will hit free agency again and will have to beat six years 170. That seems like a crazy deal to beat, except when you're 31 and a straight ace who's never missed time, you're gonna get more than six and 170. It's a brilliant opt-out provision by Joel Wolf. From the Dodgers perspective, they were far more worried that Yamamoto would want opt-outs after two years and four years and six years or every year. Instead, they were able to negotiate the $325 million deal with only the Tommy John related timing opt-out. You are gonna see more and more of this because this is how the union can get longer term deals for pitchers and it's how teams can excuse giving longer term deals to pitchers because they get to say to the commissioner, it's not really such a big deal because if he's hurt, we're protected. And then baseball would say to the team, what the hell are you talking about? If he's hurt, you're not protected because he's not worth anything and you're still guaranteeing him the 12 years, 325. And that is the argument that the commissioner's office has with its GMs and presidents every single day when they call a team who's making signings like these. And it doesn't have to be 12-325. It can be a 40-year deal, the Blake Snell deal. Whatever that Blake Snell deal is going to be, trust me, MLB is going to call the team and say, what the hell are you doing? And what the team will get to say is, hey, I'm protected. I feel good about my chances here. We'll see how that plays out. All right, what are we up to, Coca? Ah, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to review a movie that Coca did not particularly care for that I thought was outstanding. And it's with Barry Cogan and Jacob Alardi called Saltburn. And then we're going to give you the wait to see update on David Tepper. Don't go away. The NBA playoffs are heating up and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more. Don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SAMSON. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SAMSON. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. That's 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Quentin, Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.co slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. 
Saltburn. That's the movie that we are reviewing. It is a movie that has a couple nominations. Barry Cogan got nominated for Best Actor for a Golden Globe. Rosamund Pike plays the mother of Jacob Ballardi. She got nominated. And let me tell you, this is done by the same woman who wrote and directed Promising Young Woman with Carrie Mulligan, who has a cameo in this movie. And this movie is batshit crazy. This is about a person, and it's being compared to Talented Mr. Ripley. If you haven't seen that, you should go see it. But this is a movie about a guy with no money. What do all people with no money have in common in the movies? They want money. What do people have? Let me say that a better way, Coca. I want to present this exactly right so it doesn't come off. Okay, 4-8-69. There are so many movies about people who have nothing who try to infiltrate the rich to be rich or to act like they're rich or to get the riches whether it's a robbery movie, whether it's a heist movie, or whether it is some sort of social commentary about stealing money from the rich to give to the poor, or whatever the case may be. Saltburn is simply that. It is a movie about a poor guy who's trying to figure out how he can be rich, how he can live with the rich, how he can pretend he is the elite. Except Saltburn is such a perfectly written movie where you think you know what's going on, but you don't until the end when it gets solved for you. Don't get it spoiled for you. And then you're wondering in the performance, what is it about the poor person that's the sociopath? Or is it the rich people who are the crazy ones? The reason I like this type of movie is that it's so ordinary just to say rich people are crazy and rich people are are, are angry and mean with and, and steal money from poor people and 1% of the people have 99% of the wealth. And we've seen movies like that. You've heard people talk about that. This movie has some subtleties in it where you're wondering to yourself the entire time, who would you rather be? And in many of these movies, just like in life, everyone always assumes the poor people would rather be the rich people. Except sometimes the rich people would rather be the poor people. Or do they not know who the rich people are and the poor people are? It's called Saltburn. You may want to check it out. Usually we don't get wait to sees taken care of in a day, but we do keep track on davidsampsonpodcast.com. There's a document where you can check all our wait to sees. Yesterday, we talked about David Tepper. David Tepper, Champagne Showers, the owner of the Panthers who threw the drink on the fan of the Jacksonville Jaguars. And we said the NFL is going to find David Tepper and it's going to be at least $500,000 where the biggest owner fine had been 250. I also said, Roger Goodell is not gonna have a trial. He's not gonna do a big investigation. He's gonna come out with this fine expediently. Well, that part he did. Yesterday, David Tepper was fined $300,000 by Roger Goodell, which is to say, I got the wait to see wrong. However, Tepper's quote makes it all worthwhile in the revisit. I am deeply passionate about this team and regret my behavior on Sunday. A quick side note when you're doing statements and apologies and go back to previous episodes where we talk about, and you'll hear this and I'm gonna do it again today, where you put things in a statement is all very purposeful where you put commas, when you list things, 
where you put certain things in that list, where people focus on them and where they don't, gives a good window into what the person making the statement actually is saying or actually feels. When you have done something the way he did to a fan, that should be the start of the statement. I deeply regret my behavior on Sunday, but, and those would be two different words that would mean two different things. I'm deeply passionate about this team. Instead, David Tepper did the opposite. He started with, I'm deeply passionate about this team and regret my behavior on Sunday. Meaning that his behavior on Sunday can easily be explained by the fact that he's deeply passionate about his team. Roger Goodell should find him 200 grand for a crappy statement. Because leading with your deeply passionate means that you're not really sorry for what you did. Unless there be any doubt that David Tepper is not in any way regretful of his behavior. Here's his second sentence. I should have let NFL stadium security handle any issues that arose. What? No, no. I should not have thrown a drink on a fan. I should have either ignored the fan or thanked the fan for being so passionate about his team. Except David Tepper as an owner thinks it's his team, so his passion is greater than a fan's passion because there's money behind it and assets. I should have let NFL stadium security handle any issues that arose. Where did that sentence come from? And then he threw Roger Goodell, just the tiniest of bones. I respect the NFL's code of conduct and accept the league's discipline for my behavior. And he's holding his nose while saying it and crossing his toes and his fingers. David Tepper, you're really something. 300 grand. Darren Ravel had a tweet yesterday, Coca, that given the reported net worth of David Tepper, and it's hard to know unless you actually own a public company and you can look at the filing with the shares of stock, all of the estimated net worths online are ridiculous because no one knows anything about anything. But let's just say that he's worth $20 billion. Dara Ravel said, for the average American, that is the equivalent fine of $1.77. I always used to like that with betting. People started this with Jordan. When Michael Jordan would bet while golfing, and he'd bet 10,000 a hole, and people would say, given what Michael Jordan is worth, that's the equivalent of you on a Sunday betting $5 a hole. Who doesn't bet $5 a hole? Except when you're betting $300,000 a hole or $10,000 a hole, it's not looked at as though it's just a dollar or a dollar 77 or $5. Because what people are betting, like a Michael Jordan, and he said this himself in the last dance, I need to feel something. Anyway, $300,000, no matter how rich you are, that doesn't feel like a dollar 77. It feels like $300,000. But it's not going to change David Tepper's behavior. It's not going to inform whether or not he felt he was wrong about what he did because owners and their egos simply look at that and say, eh, what do I care? Nothing personal pick of the day brought to you by DraftKings. We had the Grizzlies minus 11 and a half over the Spurs and we lost. The Grizzlies were up 12, 20 seconds to go. I'm feeling great. Spurs, they could have run out the clock, lay up. John Morant, foul him, hit the free throws, we're gonna cover. Turnover, 
Spurs score again. The Grizzlies only won by eight. What a joke. That means we lost. We're 0-1, and we're down a unit. Remember, we're keeping track of units this year. All right, I've got a parlay for you. Let's talk about the Bucks Pacers. The Bucks Pacers just played New Year's, and the Pacers beat them by nine. They are quite the, uh, really, they really are rivals now. Sort of like, it's not quite up to the Knicks Pacers with Reggie Miller and Spike Lee and Ewing and Starks, but the Bucks Pacers is a pretty good rivalry. Remember the in-season in tournament? The Pacers beat the Bucks in the semifinals. Remember they won by nine? And so it's basically been uh, a series of four games where the Pacers have won three times and the Bucks once. The NBA schedule is such that they have all these back-to-backs now. Home and homes, home homes, home and aways. Very interesting schedule based on traveling and players not wanting to travel. In any case, the Bucks are playing the Pacers again in Indiana. The Bucks are favored and the Bucks are gonna win. They're not gonna lose two in a row to the Pacers. But just winning one game tonight is not enough for me. So I was gonna make it a parlay and that's what I'm gonna do, Coca. The Knicks are playing the Bulls. Everyone's all excited here in New York about the big Knicks trade. Oh, I don't know if we should have traded Barrett. Oh, I'm going to miss Quigley. Oh, but wait a minute. Now we've got some replacement for Robinson. Oh, this is great. Oh, he played so great. We won a game. I love fans. I do. Evaluating trades after a game. He looks like a great fit in New York. I love that. He's a Raptors fan his whole life. We love that he's here in Toronto. I love the spin that fans and media do when trades happen. We would, side note, Coca. Oh, let me give the pick before I give the side note. We're doing a parlay, Knicks and Bucks, but money line. Don't take them to cover, take them to win. Knicks and Bucks to win. We're going to get plus 106 for that so we can win a little over a unit. Knicks, Bucks, and a parlay. The side note is that when we would make, I don't know if we have time, Coca. I'll make it quick. When we would do trades, we would try to predict what the public response would be. And this was before Twitter and after Twitter, but mostly before Twitter. And so it would be mostly from beat reporters or from mailbags where fans would call in or write in or whether or not we'd get an email or a call. We'd try to predict what fans would say. And one of the most popular things that we would do is tell me after three games. Because if we go 0 and 3, or the player doesn't play well, or the team doesn't play well, then it's the worst trade of all time, even if it's for a bunch of minor leaguers who have a chance to be some of the best in the game, or if it's for a player who we know is really good but starts off badly. There's myriad things that can happen in a trade scenario, but evaluating a trade after a game and trying to say, oh, this looks good, that always would make us laugh. All right, Coca. And everybody else watching live on Nothing Personal with David Sampson YouTube channel, don't forget to subscribe and enjoy our videos because we're live at 8 a.m. every day, which means we'll be back tomorrow. I'm going on Levitard now at 9 a.m. live Eastern in about 15 minutes, but I'll be back here for another edition because it's just business. This is Nothing Personal. Mm -hmm.